We are going to jump right into the sermon today. We are uh, in week 10 uh, of a series called Come Home. And what we've been doing is we've been looking at uh, these books in the Old Testament called the Minor Prophets. And so these Minor Prophets, these could very well be questions uh, in some sort of a trivia game. Because some of these, it's very possible that you haven't read since you went to vacation Bible school as a child, right? Or maybe you took some Old Testament class in university or something. But part of what we've been doing is looking at these um, books we call Minor Prophets because they're just as important as the other prophetic books in the Old Testament. We just happen to sort of neglect them sometimes. So, so far we've looked at Malachi, Habakkuk, Jonah, Micah, Haggai, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Zephaniah, Obadiah, and today we're looking at the book of Zechariah. And so Zechariah, just to kind of put you sort of in a context, was written about 2,600 years ago. It was written around 550 B.C. And so part of what we read in the book of Zechariah is it says this, In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo. And so he was a contemporary of Haggai and Ezra. And so they're all writing to the Israelites who had returned after 70 years of captivity in Babylon. And so just imagine sort of like the Israelites have been gone for 70 years. And not only that, but there are some people that have been, you know, left behind in Israel. And so Zechariah and these other prophets are speaking to these people who have been left behind. And part of their charge now is to rebuild the temple. And so in just a moment, we're going to jump into two of the key themes from the book of Zechariah. But before we do that, let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for inviting us into this place. I thank you for creating Seven Hills Fellowship. I thank you for drawing these people together from all over the place uh, in order to uh, orbit around you, uh, their Heavenly Father and your Son Jesus, um, in whom they place their faith and trust. And so thank you, Father, for creating us. I pray that we would continue to submit to you as our Heavenly Father. I pray that um, we would submit our thoughts and our words and our deeds and our emotions to you as our King and our Lord. Uh, And Father, I pray that we would see and know your love for us through the person of your Son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. So in 1990, Christopher McCandless graduated from Emory University down in Atlanta. Some of you guys are familiar with his uh, story. Uh, John Krakauer, who's an author, originally unpacked his story in Outdoor Magazine uh, back in the mid-90s. And uh, essentially, the reason that this story was compelling is because when he graduated from Emory, he took $24,000 out of his educational fund. It was all that was left. And he gave it away to charity. And he j- jumped into his uh, yellow B210 Datsun, and he drove out west, leaving his friends and his family and everything behind. And he went on this wandering journey of two years. He went to the Midwest. He went to the Southwest. He went to the Northwest. He went to California. He went down to Mexico. He wandered and wandered and wandered. And at one point during his journey, uh, he was in the yellow uh, B210 Datsun, and he pulled over on the side of the road into a little gully to spend the night. And that night, there was a rainstorm, and that gully turned into a small river and basically destroyed the old Datsun. And so from there, he set out on foot, hitchhiking, getting rides, working here and there, but just wandering throughout the West. Interesting story. Now, in high school, he had been the captain of the cross-country team, and it had always been sort of one of these souls that was always sort of searching for something, sort of transcendent. There were lots of troubles at home that we don't have time to go into now, 
And uh, so he, as he wandered, he had all these amazing experiences, but what has happened is over the last 20 years, people have really asked questions like, what drove him to wander around the West? Now, uh, at the end of his two-year journey, he made his way up to Alaska. When he got to Alaska, he had this idea. You can see him there. He's leaning up against old bus 142, and uh, he decided that he wanted to hike uh, through the Alaskan bush all the way to the Bering Sea. And so he went into Alaska, this town nearby where he entered this trail, and he bought a 22 rifle with several rounds of ammunition, and he bought a little book on sort of how to forage for seeds in the Alaskan wilderness, and uh, he began to make his way to the Bering Sea through the bush. And so he got a ride to the head of this trail called the Stampede Trail, and a, a man picked him up and gave him a ride there, and as they chatted along the way, um, the man said, what are you doing? And McCandless said, I'm going to go to the Bering Sea. And this guy who was a native Alaskan said, I don't think you understand how hard that's going to be. And so we tried to talk McCandless out of this, uh, this next journey of his wanderings. But the man, when interviewed later, said he just, you know, he was dead set on doing this. So this man dropped him off on the Stampede Trail, and McCandless began making his way uh, to the northwest, trying to make it to the Bering Sea. Well, he hiked and hiked and hiked. He came to the Teklanika River, and it was frozen because it was still early spring. He crossed over the river. He went past what is now known as the Magic Bus, Bus 142, went past that bus and really walked through the wilderness. He went a couple days into the wilderness, the bush of Alaska, until he realized that it was just too hard. It was too much of a trip for him. And so he returned back to this bus, and he sort of set up camp in old bus 142. And he spent 113 days there, and he spent his time uh, recording in his journal what he was doing. He was foraging for berries. He would hunt squirrels and porcupines, even killed a moose one day. And uh, towards the end of his uh, journaling, what you can see progressively occurring is that he's getting thinner and thinner, and he has less and less energy. And uh, what became clear afterwards is that he was starving. The last day that we see in his journal on day 113, it's just a mark. Um, There's really nothing in there of content. He just marks that day. Two weeks later, his body was found in this bus by two hunters, and it was clear that he had starved to death. And so here's this young man, you know, at the time he's probably 24 years old, set off on this wandering journey. And it's interesting because he's become sort of a a romantic figure for all sorts of people, right? And so some people look at the story of Christopher McCandless and they see see this sort of great, you know, journey of wandering and trying to discover some transcendental truth. Krakauer actually, in his article in Outdoor Magazine, says this. He basically says that McCandless's desire was to be the first to explore a blank spot on the map. Then Krakauer continues, in 1992, however, there were no more blank spots on the map, not in Alaska, not anywhere. But Chris, with his idiosyncratic logic, came up with an elegant solution to this dilemma. He simply got rid of the map, right? And so Krakauer kind of paints uh, McCandless as this sort of romantic figure. And people go up to the bus and they, you know, camp out and they, you know, we now read his books, uh, the book, Krakauer's book, Into the Wild. Locals, however, have a little bit of a different perspective on McCandless. M- many of the locals think that he was a selfish, narcissistic person that relied on the goodness of all of these other people, but rejected having a relationship with them. And they look at what he did, and they were like, that was just crazy to do. It's no wonder that he passed away. Psychologists look at him, and they throw around words like attachment disorder and other things, and they chalk it up uh, not so much to selfishness or immaturity, but rather something broken inside of him. But either way, regardless of which of those different takes you have on Christopher McCandless, 
what you see is that his wandering away from home ultimately caused him great suffering, even leading to his death. And not only did it cause him great suffering, but it caused suffering to those people who loved him as well. The Israelites, throughout these minor prophets, we see that they had wandered away from God, who loved them, who cared for them, and they, like McCandless, had suffered greatly as a result. And all the while, God was pursuing them. And all the while, God was calling them. He was saying, come back home. Let's look uh, in this book of Zechariah, and let's see God wooing his wandering children back to him. The first thing we see is in Zechariah chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, and part of what God says to the people, the children of Israel, these people who have come back from this 70-year period of captivity, is he says, essentially he says, look, if you return to me, then don't worry, I'll return to you as well. Look at verses 3 and 4 of Zechariah 1. Therefore tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says, return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your ancestors to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says, turn from your evil ways and your evil practices, but they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. In other words, what God is saying to them is, look, if you just return to me, I promise I'll welcome you back with open arms. Over the last 10 weeks, we've seen how the Israelites over and over and over again, wandered away from God. The Israelites, during prosperous times, had lived in luxury, and they lived, frankly, in greed. They'd been guilty of seeking their own well-being while taking advantage of the poor and the oppressed of the land, right? That was when things were going good. When things weren't going so well, when they felt threatened, the people of Israel, instead of turning to God and instead of trusting in Him, they turned to political alliances with Egypt or with other nation states, they wandered away from him. At other times, they began to incorporate the worship of Baal and Asherah and Anat into their worship of the one true God. And when things got really, really bad, they turned their backs on God entirely and trusted in those very same Canaanite gods to give them the things that they really deeply longed for, safety, security, and prosperity. Part of what we see in reading the minor prophets, is that we are not very different from these people who lived 3,000 years ago. Like we may not worship Baal or Anat. We may not worship Asherah. But there's no doubt that we have these deep longings for safety. And that in our fear and in our terror, we're so determined to have those things that we long for, no matter the cost, that we put our trust in guns or in governments. But we forget that our ultimate safety is found in God, our Heavenly Father. We long for security, and so we place our hope in a faithful or in a hard-working spouse and maybe a well-funded retirement account, neglecting to realize that in the end, our true security isn't found in those things, but rather our true security is found in an eternal God and His all-powerful right hand. And I say this time and time again, there's nothing wrong with a retirement account or a faithful spouse or guns or governments. God has given us all those things for our good, but we pervert them when we trust in them instead of trusting in Him. Paul addresses this in Romans 1.25 when he says, of all humanity, all of us, he says this, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. 
So Paul makes this great picture. He says, look, God created all these things that we long for and desire and trust in, right? He created all these things. They're all good things, but ultimately our trust and our worship and our service belongs to him alone. In this passage of Zechariah, however, what God does, how he responds to his wandering children is that he offers them mercy and grace when he says, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. And God makes that same offer to us as well. I think if you searched your hearts and looked deeply within yourself, you would see that some of you, some of us, have wandered away from God, right? That's just true. Um, It's the story of Scripture, right? It's the story of Adam and Eve. (laughs) It's the story of all of our lives. We wander away from God. Sometimes we do it on purpose, right? Sometimes we just can't, you know, trust God at the moment. And so we go find something else to put our trust in. But sometimes we wander away from God more like a two-year-old in the park chasing an autumn leaf that's getting blown by the wind, and all of a sudden you just find yourself, you know, a long way away from your parents. We wander away for different reasons, but God gives us the same offer. He says, return to me, and I will return to you, right? So we see that in the book of Zechariah. He's basically saying, look, you don't have to fear me. I want you back. I'm inviting you back home. Return to me, and I promise I'll welcome you with open arms. They needed to hear that, and we need to hear that. The second thing we see in the book of Zechariah is that if we do return to the Lord, that he'll also make us clean. Zechariah 3 verses 1 through 5 says this, and this is a great, there's basically a a series of visions, we'll talk about them in a minute, but this is a great picture of God's grace and offering us of cleanliness. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand, his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I've taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. So Zechariah is comprised of um, lots of different things, but nine different visions. And in this particular vision, we see a courtroom setting where Joshua, who's the high priest at the time, seems to be on trial. He seems to be the one standing trial. He's standing in front of a mysterious character that we see throughout the Old Testament called the angel of the Lord, who seems in this instance to be the judge. And so Joshua is standing there before this judge, the angel of the Lord, and standing beside Joshua is Satan, acting as the prosecuting attorney. And things, just to be honest, don't look good for Joshua. In the vision, we're told that he's dressed in filthy clothes. And so you can just imagine that Joshua's head is drooping, and his face is downcast as he stands in this courtroom. He's guilty, and he knows it. Satan's accusations are actually true. But look at how the angel of the Lord responds to our accuser, his accuser. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? And so in a dramatic twist, the judge doesn't reprimand Joshua, but rather rebukes Satan. The angel of the Lord steps in and protects a broken man. Shame on you. 
Is not this man someone I've chosen to save? The judge then orders the attendants in the courtroom to take off Joshua's filthy robes. There is then what seems to be probably a dramatic pause while Joshua stands there naked, unclothed in the presence of this court with his filthy robes lying in a heap on the floor. And the angel of the Lord then says to Joshua, See, I've taken away your sin. So the angel of the Lord stands there and makes this declaration over this this naked man in his courtroom. And he says, see, I've taken away your sin. And now it becomes clear what's going on. Joshua's filthy robes are a metaphor for his sin, maybe a metaphor for our sin. And Satan is accusing Joshua, saying, there's no way that you can be a priest. Just look at your sin. There's no way you can be a husband. Just look at your sin. There's no way you can be a father or a mother. Just look at your sin. There's no way you can be a leader for these other people. Just look at your sin. And then the angel of the Lord renders his judgment upon Joshua, saying, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. Then I, that is the angel of the Lord, says, Put a clean turban on his head. In other words, that's a sign of his priesthood. Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. And so Joshua is able to stand in the Lord's presence because the Lord has removed his sin and clothed him in a righteousness that is absolutely not his own. And so the question should be, how can this be? How can he receive a verdict of not guilty? How can he receive a verdict of that he's righteous? How can we, how can his filthy robes be taken away? How will our filthy robes be taken away? And Zechariah gives us numerous clues. In in Zechariah 9, we read this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, riding righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Sounds familiar. The Lord their God will save his people on that day as a shepherd saves his flock. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. And then we get another clue of how this righteousness is attributed to us. Zechariah 3 says this, Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you who are men symbolic of things to come. I'm going to bring my servant, the branch. See, the stone I've set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. Zechariah 11. I told them, if you think it's best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they valued me. That's sarcastic. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them to the potter at the house of the Lord. And so 30 pieces of silver was the price for a slave. It was the price for somebody that could be trashed, thrown away. This is the price given to the one who rode in on this colt in Zechariah 9. And in Zechariah 12, we read more about how this verdict of not guilty is achieved. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace 
and supplication, they will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. And so speaking through Zechariah, God addresses the fears and the deepest longings of his people. God addresses their fears of rejection by offering forgiveness if they repent and return. He says, it's that easy, just turn back to me and I'll welcome you with open arms. God addresses their fear that the truth about them is too much to be overcome by rebuking not them, but their accuser and providing them or us with a righteousness that's not our own. God addresses the Israelites' deep longings to love and be loved. He addresses their deep desire for safety and security. God addresses their deep desire that all would be made right with them and with the world. And God's answers to all of these fears and hopes and desires is a person, right? Not a concept, not an idea, but the answer that God offers is a person. Their hope, our hope, is in a king who comes riding on a colt in order to save them. Their hopes find fulfillment in a branch and in a stone who will take away their sin in one act so great that nothing more is required. All their hopes find fulfillment at no cost to them, but with great cost to the one who would save them, the one they have pierced, the one who has paid 30 pieces of silver for his work. I think God's plan to rescue his people was absolutely a mystery to Adam and to Abraham. I think his plan to rescue his people was a mystery to David, to the prophets, even the angels. I doubt very much that Zechariah knew who God was talking about, but we do. This mysterious figure who would save them and us was the branch of David, the stone that the builders rejected, the one who was pierced for our transgressions, the king who entered Jerusalem riding on a colt in a straight line to the cross as the people cried, Hosanna. Jesus was the one who was betrayed by Judas for 30 pieces of silver in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus willingly laid down his life for you and for me in order to rescue us, to redeem us, and to bring us back to God, presenting us in clean robes, not of our righteousness, but of his righteousness. All of this is in the book of Zechariah. It's God offering us grace and mercy and forgiveness and restoration, not through an idea or a concept, but rather through His Son. This morning, as you look around the room, you'll see tables with bread and wine on my right and bread and grape juice on your left. And this bread and wine represent that person, Jesus. They represent that salvation. They represent that declaration of not guilty. They represent that declaration of innocence. They represent that Jesus laid down his life for you so that you could be presented to God perfect and blameless in righteous robes that are his, not yours. And so this meal today of bread and wine is all of those symbols for you. It actually symbolizes your deepest hopes, your deepest desires, and it actually symbolizes a cure to your deepest fears. This meal is for all of us who trust in Christ alone for our salvation. And this meal is God's way of reminding us that we are forgiven, that He welcomes us with open arms if we turn to Him. This meal is a reminder that, like Joshua standing in that courtroom with his filthy robes on, 
that if you trust in Christ's righteousness, that you don't stand before God in your filthy robes or even naked, but rather you stand before God in righteous robes of Christ's righteousness, which his life, death, and resurrection guaranteed for you. And so this meal represents that God says everything that's been done has been done in order to make us okay. You and I are good. I'm no longer angry with you. There's no more wrath that remains. So what I would encourage you to do this morning is I would encourage you to think about how this meal is a declaration of forgiveness, that God looks at you, that he loves you, that he forgives you for all of your sins, past, present, and future, and that he welcomes you with open arms to this table of the Lord. Now, one qualifying piece that I have to say is that this meal actually isn't for everybody, but it is for those who trust in Christ alone. And so if you haven't come to that point today in your relationship with God, I would simply ask that you sit back and you watch the people of God as we symbolically receive this declaration of not guilty from God our Father. I'm going to read the words of institution, then I'll take a moment and pray. Just ask that you take some time and that you pray to God, and uh, maybe you confess some of your wanderings to Him, but then receive the forgiveness that He offers you with open arms. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, He took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you um, for your word, that your word uh, gives us clarity um, about who we are, about who you are, and about how it is that we are to relate to you. Father, I thank you for your son, Jesus, who entered into a dark world in order to be a light shining in the darkness, revealing who you are uh, and who we are and who he is. Father, I pray that uh, you would remind us through this meal that we're forgiven, that we're loved, that your son Jesus willingly sacrificed himself in order to be your rescue plan for humanity. And so, Father, I pray today that we would take this bread, that we would dip it into the wine, and that we would believe what it is that you say about us and that we would believe what it is that you say about your son, and what, that we would believe what it is that you say about who you are as well, our loving and gracious Father. We pray these things now in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.